Wow, that's never happened before. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be here at Knollwood. Just such a warm welcome on the way in. And um, do we not live in a crazy world? Oh, my goodness. It is a crazy, crazy world. And uh, it's interesting. Paul's world was not a whole lot different than our world. Uh, Going to be talking about Romans today a little bit and uh, my favorite book of the Bible. And if you even do a cursory study on Romans and Roman culture, we're going to see it's a lot like our culture today. And um, so, you know, Corey, in the big picture, in the big picture, what specific parts of Scripture would you suggest we know to be more faithful, even more fruitful in evangelism? Well, that was the, uh, the hot seat question that our partner church pastor asked me when I trained his church for our Go Canada 150 uh, mission in Ottawa for the Big, uh, uh, the, uh, big Canada 150 um, celebration. And you know, I guess i got to tell you, after about a dozen years of training churches as an equipping evangelist, you know, about 99% of the questions that I'm asked in a hot seat scenario I've heard before. That was in the 1% category. I had never been asked that question before. But who's very thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whereby you've been in those situations, someone's asked you something, and you needed something downloaded into your gray matter that just wasn't there previously, and he kind of bailed you out in that moment. You thankful for that? That was sort of the scenario for me. The grace and power of God was in that moment. And, uh, but I was also very thankful for that pastor's question. Because as a pastor... And an evangelist myself. The more I walk with Christ, and really the further I walk with Christ, the more he helps me realize something very important. And if you're taking notes, this is a decent one right here. Even if you really get nothing else out of what I have to say, I think this is a really helpful note. That life, life is most fruitfully lived in the big picture. In the big picture. We have a little saying that the, that the, the toughest questions are most biblically handled in the biggest picture. And I think that is very, very true. And in the big picture here today, in the big picture, knowing God personally is the pursuit of discipleship. And making God personally known is the purpose of evangelism. And so you get the scenario. In response to that pastor's question, in the big picture... In the big picture, the specific parts of Scripture, Romans for certain, just the whole book, is a a lulu of a gospel book. It's actually called the gospel letter. John Piper calls it the greatest letter ever written. But in the big picture, the specific parts of Scripture, I'd strongly suggest we know, we drill down into, in order to be more faithful and fruitful in evangelism, are Romans chapters 1 through 3. Romans 1, 2, and 3. And in this context of evangelism, let me explain why that is. Really, Romans 1, 2, and 3 give us God's word on what's called worldview. That's a buzz term today, isn't it? Worldview. What's, what's a worldview? Well, a worldview is a network of presuppositions or sort of, sort of foundational assumptions all people have about all aspects of of life. And knowing this is so, so important, folks, in evangelism. I want you to listen carefully to how a hero of mine, 
Maybe you've uh, come across Christian apologist Dr. Greg Bonson. Listen how he explains this concept. When we talk to unbelievers about their views, especially their worldviews, we should be especially sensitive to hear or discern what their controlling assumptions are about the nature of reality, metaphysics, about the nature of knowledge, epistemology, and about what is right or wrong in human behavior, ethics. Now, <laughs> sparing you the, uh, the, the confusion and frustration of me trying to teach you um, philosophy, because that would be a train wreck for, for certain, let me just sort of simplify and try to apply Dr. Bonson's suggestion by, again, bringing us back into that big picture, okay? In Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, we learn this, that every, every image-bearing creature of God, that's humans, every single image-bearing creature of God has already been given sufficient knowledge to condemn, but insufficient knowledge to save. And in this big picture sermon, what I hope to do is teach through three universal truths about God. Three universal truths about God. Two that all people already know, and one all people need to know. And it's sincerely my hope and my prayer that as I do that, that these truths will help you more intimately know God and more intentionally make God known as a faithful disciple of King Jesus. So you're coming with me, church. Can we do that this morning? Is that okay? All right. Okay, here's universal truth number one from Romans 1. You know God exists because of creation. You know God exists because of creation. We read in Romans 1, 18 to 22. This is one of my memory verses. This is my Awana verse, you might say. Okay, right here. And uh, this is a great memory verse where the, the Bible says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God's plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, hear that, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became Fools. Circle that word, underline that word, fools. See, these verses clearly teach that because God has made himself plain and shown himself 24-7 through creation, through his creation, all people are without excuse for denying him. In other words, out of the gate, out of the gate, all people have already been graciously sort of hardwired by God with knowledge. Of what? Well, of his existence in the passage, of his power, of his divine nature. And God's creation is this constant reminder of this God-given knowledge. Psalm 19 is sort of the Old Testament version of what we just read. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals, someone finish it, reveals knowledge. Knowledge. Now, theologically, we call this self-revealing of God general revelation. Maybe you've heard that term before. General revelation. Because it only gives us general information about him. Yet, all people are accountable for this general knowledge they've been given. You see, that's why God, in this passage and elsewhere, God is a very telling name for all those who so willfully and defiantly suppress this truth of him. It's found here in this passage, but also in Psalm 14.1. Hear this. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Now, please note, if you're taking notes, this is not God's version of sort of cosmic name-calling. Fool? Because this is not at all an intellectual indictment. It's a moral one. So the professing atheist, that's a very sexy term these days. I'm an atheist. For the first time in human history, apparently... It's intellectual to say you don't know something. Well, how do we get here? Right? How did we get here? But in context, the professing atheist or agnostic is a fool because hear this. In saying that God doesn't exist or they don't know God exists when they already do know God exists, they're actually lying against and therefore sinning against the God they do know exists. Now, more on that in point two. But in God's big picture, in God's big picture, Scripture confirms over and over and over again that all people in all times, in all places, already know that God exists and they're fools for denying Him. But we live in this world that's so determined, so driven to create many equally valid worldviews. That's a lot. Check out that screen. That's a lot of worldviews. I'm going to talk about that more in a few minutes. But in God's big picture, there are only really two worldviews. God or not God. God or not God. That is belief and worship and profession of the one true God of creation or, conversely, unbelief idolatry and suppression of the one true creator God of the Bible. That's what we're left with. Psalm 96.5. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Option one, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. That's it. Very simple. God really makes it very, very simple. Idolatry or worship of King Christ. That's what we're left with. So it does sort of beg the question, I mean, how does this practically play out in evangelism? Because not only are we surrounded by boatloads of people right here in London, right here in Ontario, in Canada, and even in Western culture, who've never heard God's good news. I mean, right here at home, we meet them all the time. But there are also about 2 billion plus more around the world who've never heard the gospel Either So it begs the question, folks, it really does. Missiology 101 is this. What will happen with those who've never heard? 
What will happen with those who's never, who've never heard the gospel, the good news of Christ? You know, as a pastor and an evangelist, this is probably the most question that I'm personally asked in both discipleship and in evangelism. Well, I want to try to tackle this one to climb Everest as Bereans with Bible in hand based on God's word in Romans 1. This is an interactive question. Be kind to your guest preacher this morning. Can you do that? Right? Pastor Nate will be very excited if you answer me after I ask this question. If anyone, here's my question. If anyone anywhere dies and stands in judgment before God, are they with or without excuse for denying him. They are without excuse because they already know God exists, Romans 1 says. And so they willfully deny him. Do you understand this, folks? Do you understand this fact that if any unreached person anywhere were with excuse, right? The the Peruvian tribe leader, Bob, you know the guy, we always talk about Bob. What about Bob? I mean, if Bob dies before hearing the gospel. Do you understand? If that person were with excuse, if Bob were with excuse today, then going to preach the gospel to Bob would be the worst thing you could do. I might even say the most unloving thing you can do. Why? Because then they'd be without excuse. Do you understand that? We should send missionary wall building teams around Bob, shouldn't we? If he's with excuse, but that's not what it says. Missions 101 says he is without excuse. I mean, Jesus said go for good reason, folks. When we teach biblical apologetics, and that's sort of a a close cousin of biblical evangelism, right? We advance the gospel and we give a defense for our faith. This is the little interactive saying that we use. And I want you to kind of, again, be part of this this morning. Say this after me. We go because they know. We go because they know. If they don't know, don't go. But they do know. That's why we go. See, how this plays out biblically is we go into all the world and we preach the gospel to every creature. Why? And we share Christ as the only way to salvation because all people are without excuse. Now, full disclosure, this is so easy for me to buy into when I think about Bob. But what about my family and friends? What about my neighbors right here at home? My high thinking ones. I mean, they say they're atheists. They've got a bunch of letters after their name. Shouldn't that be enough? Well, Got to ask you straight up, the next time a lost loved one right here, whether that's in class, whether that's at work, whether that's by the water cooler, whether that's on the soccer field, in the hockey rink, the next time they say, oh, I'm an atheist, or oh, I'm an agnostic, folks, we have in that moment, to the glory of God, a watershed witnessing decision to make. Right there. Stand off, light and darkness. Will I believe them? and jump on that airplane and go to that destination, Fantasy Island, for those of you who remember Tattoo, right? (laughs) Or will I believe God and stand my ground and build my house conversationally on the rock to the glory and praise of Christ? Because he says that everyone knows him and all are without excuse 
for denying him. And really, in biblical apologetics, if you study that even a little bit, what we're really doing, that's giving a defense for our faith, we're really lovingly and respectfully reasoning from Scripture. That's what we're doing. We're opening the Bible. We're reasoning from Scripture to remove the mask of foolishness and suppression of truth to, here's the word, to expose. You understand, biblical apologetics isn't so much about proving. It's more about exposing foundationally what they already know that's different but why do we do that to share our hope in christ does the world need hope oh my goodness this city again every time and you know what i'm talking about here every year at this time the city goes nuts i'm like what is going on how does this not make more sense to people because in the heart of heart of every human we know when things are pure or perverse don't we we just know these things why is that because we are image bearers of god so in the big picture universal truth number one from romans one is that you know god exists because of creation here's universal truth number two from romans two you also know that you've sinned against god because of your conscience wow Brace yourself, brace yourself, because our, our universal accountability, really, and liability gets much more personal and much more, I would say, perilous at this point right here. Romans 2, 12 to 16, says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You know, in a world that's so determined to create many classes of people, again, there's this illusion Ravi Zacharias talks about. There's this illusion the world's spinning. The God of this age is blind to the mind of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. There's this illusion that there's many classes of people. But again, in God's big picture, there are only two. This is what it says. There are only two. There are those who are under the law. Anyone know who those people are? They're Jews in context, the Jews. And those who are without the law, probably most of us, Gentiles. And again, in context, we know that the Jews received God's written law codified on two tablets of stone. What's that called? Ten Commandments, right? And this passage in Romans 2 tells us that God has also written on the hearts of all people knowledge of right and wrong through our conscience. Conscience. It's interesting this Greek word. The Greek word for conscience actually means with knowledge. It's interesting, isn't it? What knowledge? What knowledge? Well, at this point, I want to cite a smarter guy. I don't know if Pastor Nate ever does. Sometimes we need to just like, bring in a witness, okay? a smarter person than me. I've got one here, uh, Dr. Thomas Schreiner. Tom, Tom Schreiner is one of my favorites in, in biblical law. This guy has studied this for years and years and years. Um, 
Schreiner explains the concept of conscience this way in the context of Romans 2. Listen to this. He says, even though unbelieving Gentiles, again, that's the majority of lost in our world, they do not have God's written law. God's law, the moral precepts of the law, is imprinted on their hearts. God is righteous in judging them on the last day, for they knew what was morally praiseworthy and failed to carry it out. Man, that's, that's a showstopper. That's a showstopper. Now, because at the Cross Current, that's the ministry that, uh, that I direct, we actually believe and teach this, that methodology flows from theology. I know it's early, but can you catch that? Methodology flows from theology. That is to say that how we b- behave is ultimately a result of what we believe in every category of your life, whether that's parenting or ministry or evangelism, or politics, whatever your thing is, that's a direct result of your theology. So before I share how this point looks practically in conversation, I think that'll be really helpful with a non-Christian, I want you to track with me as I try to teach through how the moral precepts of God's law, what this passage is talking about, written on our hearts, imprinted on our hearts, and God's judgment looks theologically. That's what Shriner just said. God's righteous in his judgment. How and why is that so? Now, to tee this up in context, let me ask you this question. Why is God so drop-dead serious about sin? Seems to be a pretty huge theme in the Bible. I've got a dear friend who was radically saved in his later years. He started reading the Bible at Genesis, okay? And he's just waiting for this Jesus guy to show up. I mean, it takes a while, right? I mean, I know that he's all through. Every page of the Bible bleeds Jesus, someone said. But I kid you not, he's, he's seeing this sin theme build through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He actually went and purchased himself an animal to slaughter, thinking that's how he had to atone for his sin. Because he got this sense of, wow, is God ever serious about sin here? Why is that? That's true. Why is God so drop-dead serious about sin? Well, here's the answer that I'm going to teach toward for the next few minutes. I believe the Bible teaches God is so drop-dead serious about sin. Theologically, because when we sin... When we sin, we reflect a false image of God. We lie about who he is, and in so doing, we willfully attempt to rob God of his glory. I want to leave the the hang up there for just a moment. I want you to think about, process that for a moment. When we sin, we reflect a false image of God, we lie about who he is, and we attempt to rob God of his glory. You know, in Romans 1, Paul begins in the big picture of creation. And he lays this glorious foundation for the fact that God created all people in his image. Practically, what that means is that as his image-bearing creatures, we all reflect, possess and really reflect, we image certain aspects of who God is, don't we? Godlike attributes. Now, these are basically moral, they're spiritual, they're functional attributes. Now, these are expressed in the things that we, we think, we say, and we do ultimately for God as we imitate 
God. Now, I know, I know that's a mouthful and really a mindful, but just sort of stay with me. Because if you're looking for a 75 cent term to jot down, a little theology term we can impress our friends and family with, you're, I got one. Ready for this? It's this communicable. Communicable. These are communicable attributes of God. These are things that we can possess that God gives us. Now, there's a whole bunch of incommunicable attributes of God. Turn to your neighbor and said, you ain't omni-nothing. Say that to them. You ain't omni-nothing, right? Those are incommunicable. Those are things we can't possess. We can't reflect. I am not all anything, all-powerful, all-knowing, because those belong to God alone. Okay, But the communicable attributes of God that we can possess include things like these. All people, hear this, like goodness, hate, justice, knowledge, love. These are transcendent sort of things that all people can possess, right? Mercy, speech, spirit, truthfulness, wisdom. And the suggestion of the Bible is these things are expressed in what we think, say, and do. Does that that make sense? So here's how this plays out. God, as image bearers of God, he downloads into us. He gives us aspects of who he is. We're not God. But as image bearers, unique to all creation, we have aspects of who he is, communicable. They've been communicated to us. And we reflect those things in things we think, say, and do, hopefully for the glory of God. That's the human experience. However, here's where the plot thickens. As creatures made in God's image, we're commanded to faithfully imitate him. Ephesians 5.1. Through these communicable attributes of him. Now, why do we do that? Because as I think godly thoughts, as I speak and walk in godly ways... The world will hopefully, I'm imaging God, the true God of creation, and hopefully the world will see and hear him truthfully in us, and he will be glorified, he will be praised, he will be worshipped. That's that salt and light principle that Jesus is drilling down into in the Sermon on the Mount. But what Paul's saying here, and this is why this is so important, Paul's saying that, that all have sinned, All have sinned, and theologically, biblically, what that means is that although we know better, we know better, we've all failed to imitate God, and in so doing, we've reflected a false, an ugly, a broken image of God, and we've lied about who he is, folks. I mean, God says don't lie. I get it, ninth commandment, don't lie. Jesus reinforces that under the new covenant, get that. Why? Why does God say don't lie? Because he's not a liar. See, when I lie, as one called to be true, as he is true, one called to reflect him accurately, when I lie, I fail to imitate him as true, and in effect, I knowingly lie about who he is. Because God's not a liar. God's not a liar. God says don't steal. Why does God say that? Well, Corey, because taking someone else's stuff is not loving your neighbor. Absolutely true. But you understand, most, most of our interpretation and understanding as human beings is a very horizontal view of sin. Do you understand what I mean by that? 
It's very person to person. I think there's a greater vertical thing going on here, really. Remember David? Remember the whole Bathsheba problem? In one terrible act, he basically breaks all the Ten Commandments. Remember Psalm 51, that model prayer of repentance? What does David say? Against you only have I sinned. What? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about Nathan? I mean, it, it, was, ba- it was a bad... Why is stealing so bad? Because God's not a thief. That's why stealing's so bad. See, when I steal as an image bearer of God, I reflect a false image of Him. I fail to him and imitate Him as just, and I lie about who He is. Because God's not a thief. So God is so drop-dead serious about sin because when we sin, when we lie, when we steal, we reflect a false image of him. And in essence, we lie about who he is. And that's what's so important. We willfully attempt to rob God of his glory. John Piper calls us glory thieves. Wow, what a, what a picture, glory thieves. And because God has already given us knowledge and truth that it's wrong to do this, we must, as Paul says, suppress truth in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Again, to, uh, to borrow a Greg Bonson idea illustration, I love how he illustrates how the unbeliever foolishly and willfully suppresses the truth that they've been given by God. And on a personal note, I found this very helpful, not just for knowing God personally through discipleship, but in sitting in conversation with an unbeliever. This is a great way to illustrate what they're doing here. If you've ever played volleyball in a swimming pool, maybe at some summer point, you've likely experienced that bratty, I mean uh, curious little kid, (laughs) who constantly takes the ball and tries to push it down, tries to hide the ball in a swimming pool. And you'll know if you've tried to do that, that there's this force kind of trying to push that thing back up. And you've got to be very intentional intentional about pushing that thing down. Well, if that ball represents truth and the knowledge associated with what we're doing, what we see happen over and over again is that they can only play that game so long as they push that ball down. After a while, they lose the grip on that ball. It bobs back up, thus proving they were in contact with truth all along. Well, that pretty much illustrates every conversation I have with an image-bearing unbeliever. Again, if that volleyball represents the knowledge and truth of God that they already hold and they're accountable for, All they want to do is suppress it and push it down under the water and try to convince me or you that they actually don't know truth. You ever been in this crossfire? There's no such thing as absolute truth, Corey. Is that absolutely true? Yes. So there is. Just said there wasn't. Is that true? Yes. Does that not sound foolish to you? Children get that. Children get that. So why is it that they do that? Well, when you ask someone a catch-all question like, is it absolutely true that you don't believe in absolute truth? And they say, why, yes, it is. What's really going on is this. The game is over because the ball bobs back up and they're, again, only confirming or really exposing what they do know, that they do know God, and they're willfully suppressing truth. 
the truth. Some people are bratty about it when they sort of get that exposing thing. Sometimes they're curious. Sometimes they're inquisitive. Depends on what the Holy Spirit's doing in their heart. But that's why I believe sincerely that if Brother Paul, the apostle, were standing here right now, I believe that he'd summarize this by saying something like this. You know, I've got good news. I've got bad news. I've got good news. I've got bad news. Bad news first. God does not condemn people for what they don't know. But for sin against God, they do know. You catch that? God does not condemn anyone for what they don't know. But for sin against God, they do know. And that's the bottom biblical line on universal truths number one and two. But... But the good news that you need to know is this, universal truth number three from Romans three, that only God himself can save you from his wrath through Christ. Providentially, sovereignly, I love how Matt prayed that through at the beginning. I don't think he saw my notes. I don't think he knew what I was going to be talking about, but the Holy Spirit is clearly at work here because only God himself can save you from his wrath through Christ. Romans three, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. See, all people in all times, all places, already know God exists because of creation. So they're without excuse. That's what it says. Already. And all people in all times and all places know that they've sinned against God because of their conscience, which means they're condemned already. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. You know the verse. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is what? Not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's what it says. Condemned already. Which is why all people in all times and in all places need to know that only God himself can save them from his wrath through Christ. So they need to believe in Jesus, which only happens by hearing the gospel. This is the good news. That Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, came into the world as a man to live in perfect obedience to God the Father. With his death on the cross, Jesus became the perfect sacrifice, canceling the debt against sinners by taking their full punishment upon himself. Three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, earning eternal life for all those who trust in him. Through his love and his mercy, Jesus satisfied God's justice and is the only way to peace, assurance, forgiveness, and salvation. To be reconciled to God, you must repent and trust that Jesus died for your sins. Your sins will be forgiven and God will see you. God will see you 
as perfect in Christ, make you a new creation with the redeemed soul for eternity and redeemed reasoning. Now, please, if that's new to you or you haven't spiritually heard that with spiritual ears, please repent of your sin and believe this good news of Jesus Christ now while there's still time. Now, theologically, creation and conscience are God's general revelation to all people, but Christ is God's special revelation, revealed specially only to those who hear his gospel. How do they hear it? From us. This is why we need to go. We go because they know. We go because they know. And before I close in prayer for that sort of very pursuit and purpose, I want to let you know about a, about a free sort of resource, or I think it's a photocopied resource that, um, that you'll be given today if you haven't already. We call this, this is sort of a, uh, a more polished version, we call this a worldview witnessing tract. I think you had a little photocopy of it. If you didn't, they're probably available on your way out. And it'll equip you to simply share what you've heard today with others, with Christians for discipleship and with non-Christians uh, for evangelism. So Jesus said, I, I had a great conversation on the way in with, uh, with a senior saint who was so warm and friendly about this elusive idea of knowledge. You, you do understand that the goal of the Great Commission is not to know stuff. Jesus didn't say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples and teach them to know stuff. Folks, that's not what he said. The goal is obedience. I would go this far. Knowledge, apart from obedience, puts us in grave danger. Because Jesus warned about being a hearer, not a doer. So this is one tool that will equip you not just to know, but to go and to share and to call folks to obey King Jesus. So side one shows the many, crazy side, side one shows the many, many ways that the world tries to hide that ball under the water. These are all the various suppressions of truth, and we could call it, this is kind of fun, it, it asks a question in the gray box, do you believe God exists? Yes, I do, don't know, don't care, no, and that leads you to these red boxes, which are basically a religious position. Now, on the inside, we call all, all of those idolatry, except for Christian theists, which is nestled somewhere in the middle, because you flip this thing over, you flip it over, and it exposes those lies by teaching through the truths that we've talked about today with scriptures. So we know here are three truths about God, two you already know, one you need to know. God exists, you know that, you know you've sinned against God, you need to know that only God can save you from his wrath. I, I sincerely hope that that resource will be as much of a blessing to your life and witness as it has been to mine. I'm about two weeks from doing training at a, uh, a youth and young adult worldview camp. I've done this for years and years and years, and this is the tool that they're equipped with. We go to Niagara Falls and we share the gospel with all the, the people who kind of congregate at the falls. This is the tool we use. This is the tool we use in downtown London to start conversation with strangers. This is a tool I use in my personal evangelism with family and friends because this tells the whole Romans 1, 2, 3 experience right here. 
Because, you know, I am so very thankful to God that Knollwood is a local missions partner church with the Cross Current. I think you know that. And before I, I pray for your life and witness for Christ, I just want to invite you to pray for my family and our ministry at the Cross Current. Lots going on. But uh, I shared this with, um, with Jerry on the way in. Do you know that the CBC recently reported that Canada is set to lose 9,000 churches in the next decade? That's a third. Now... God can intervene, God can blow up the numbers. I fully understand that. I'm a sovereigntist like you are. But 9,000 churches in just 10 years. That's why we need to urgently equip every evangelical church as soon as possible. The curious question I was asked on the way in is, is the church, big C, is it reaching out? 9,000 churches closing? No. I'm sorry, it's just not reaching out. I mean, this is not complicated. We sow seed, we water seed, God grows seed. No seed sown, no seed grown. Can we all agree on that? It's not complicated. So no, our ministry is devoted to equipping leaders in their own local churches to unify and multiply in the gospel. Entire churches. We do individual training, that's great. But we are in partnership with more and more churches, elders, leaders of churches, to mentor them to multiply ministry in their own churches. If that war cry resonates with your heart in any way, uh, just please ask me for one of these family ministry prayer packs. I brought a few. Uh, We gave out a bunch last time that I was here. I'd love to connect with you over coffee. I'm a local guy just down behind 3M. I mean, I'm just five, ten minutes from here. And so if you'd like to connect for coffee, I'd love to, to share with you more about the amazing things God's doing through the cross current and how you can support us in this great work with local churches. Let me pray for you. Well, Father God, we come to you, Lord, in the name of your Son and in the power of your Spirit to ask, God, boldly but humbly, that you help us to more fruitfully know you and make you known as faithful subjects of King Jesus. God, we also pray for all of our own lost loved ones that you've providentially placed in our lives. God, by your Spirit, give us all the, the accuracy, but the boldness with, with the urgency that we need to share Christ. And God, give each of them your supernatural desire to receive Christ. And personally, Lord, inspired by the words of your servant Paul, I thank you for all the leaders and members here at Knollwood and for our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. May we faithfully abide together in Christ, bear much fruit for your glory, and prove to be disciples of Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. What